Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays with SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in security studies are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Susan Colborn, a professor of security studies at Duke University. Professor Colborn's Wednesday seminar lecture involves the impact of the Euro missile system on the NATO alliance in the 1980s. Her research into the topic covers the Euro missiles as a history of diplomacy, social movements, nagging fears, politics, and nuclear weapons. She is the associate director at the Triangle Institute for Security Studies at Duke's Sanford School. She is a diplomatic and international historian focusing on strategy and security in the atomic age. There we go. Uh, So what I'm going to talk to you today about is uh, my forthcoming book, Euromissiles, the Nuclear Weapons That Nearly Destroyed NATO. It's coming out with Cornell University Press officially on November 15th, uh, although it seems like everyone who pre-ordered it has copies, except that is for me. <laughs> That's how it works, right? You, you write a book, and then you're the last person to see the, the end product of that work. The book is a transatlantic history of the so-called Euromissiles. By that, I just mean the theater nuclear forces or intermediate-range nuclear forces, often known by the acronyms TNF and then INF, though I promise I'm going to try to keep the acronyms low. Really difficult for a historian of NATO's nuclear issues. But these missiles dominated much of the politics and discourse of the 1970s and 1980s. And so at the heart, our sort of central cast of characters, such as inanimate objects, can be our central characters, It's a story that revolves around three types of medium-range missiles. On one hand, the Soviet Union's RSD-10 Pioneer, or as you most likely probably know it, if you're familiar with them, you know it by its NATO reporting name, the SS-20 Sabre. And then two sets of US missiles, the BGM-109G Griffin ground-launched cruise missiles, or Glickums, and the US Pershing-2 ballistic missiles. And so the history that I tell in this book started from a quite simple but big question. Why did the Euro missiles matter? With my time today, I want to talk first a little bit about how I came to this project and the process of researching this book as a historian. And then I want to walk through some of the major episodes and hone in on a few of the key takeaways and arguments, if only to tee up some things that we might talk about in the Q&A. A critical part of this project was framed oh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, was framed by the fact that I really think that we are at a sort of inflection point in scholarly thinking about the Cold War, but particularly in thinking about the late Cold War. And it seems to me that that shift is made possible by two major phenomena. 
One is about growing access to archival material from the 1970s and from the 1980s. And the other is a generational shift, that sufficient time has passed that we now have a generation of scholars thinking about this period who do not have firsthand memories of the Cold War, even the end of the Cold War. Many of us were young kids when the Berlin Wall came down. And so a critical element of this project for me was to write an accessible account of an immensely complicated issue using some of this newly released and newly available archival material, but to do so in a way that could help explain the stakes of the Euro missiles, primarily to a generation of readers who might not immediately and instinctively understand the dynamics or even the stakes of this arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. So who might not come to the table with assumptions or intimately familiar with assumptions that underpinned much of the Cold War in Europe and the nuclear arms race between the two superpowers and their respective alliances. So a few words about how I approached that task. Typically, when we think about the Euro missiles, we tend to think about moments like this one. So here is two people who I think need no introduction probably to this audience, right? Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. This is the two of them signing the INF Treaty, the December 1987 agreement that did away with the Euro missiles. But the story I tell in the book is not just a story about a dramatic and profound change in superpower relations. Just as common were scenes like this one. Here you can see hundreds of thousands of West German citizens assembled in the capital, Bonn, to oppose NATO's plans to deploy the Glickums and Pershing II's in Western Europe, including in the Federal Republic of Germany. Though, as you can see from even a cursory look at the banners here, these protests were always about more than just the missiles. Right? We have banners calling for neutrality, an end to NATO membership, a Spanish refusal to join NATO. Uh, we even have some uh, signs of communist leanings in the German body politic. To explain why the Euro missiles mattered, I quickly concluded that it was not enough to look at these two phenomena in isolation, but that it was important to bring together these and other strands, to put widespread social movements alongside questions of nuclear strategy, superpower diplomacy, arms control, alliance politics, and the like. And so the basic aim of Euro missiles was to shift the frame. If you can switch the slide. Rather than focus on one dimension of the Euro missiles, be that relations between the superpowers or within social movements, I opted instead to put NATO at the center of the story. And in doing so, I was able to take a view that considered the interactions and connections between alliance politics and electoral politics and superpower politics. There was a choice that ultimately shaped how and where I decided to conduct archival research. The book draws on deep archival work from across the Atlantic Alliance in member states, both large and small, as well as the holdings of the NATO archives housed at NATO's headquarters in Brussels. I conducted research in presidential records and prime ministerial papers, 
in foreign ministry, defense ministry, and intelligence records from Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Germany, uh, and more. I want to give you just one example of what this turned up. Here we can see one characteristically blunt assessment from the French Foreign Ministry archives, making very clear in point one here that the center of the issue about modernizing theater nuclear forces was about the Federal Republic of Germany. This is from 1979, the fall of 1979. But this thread, the centrality of the Federal Republic, is something that I draw out in a fair bit of detail in the book and is something I'm happy to come back to and talk about in the Q&A as I think it's really one of the most interesting pieces of, of the book. Using a multinational source base was not just about providing different perspectives or assessments of a complex issue in an almost impossibly sometimes complex alliance. It was also not just about moving beyond treatments focused solely on the biggest allies, but I'm Canadian, so I have a sort of natural inclination to want to include the smaller and middle guys, too. It was also driven by the realities of doing contemporary international history. <laughs> I'm not going to surprise anyone in this room when I tell you that studying nuclear weapons remains a complicated and sensitive question. And there's still plenty of information withheld. Governments are reluctant to share material on weapons deployments and weapons decision-making. Take, for example, if you've been reading about this story in the news, the CIA's recent efforts to get the Foreign Relations of the United States volume on U.S.-Soviet relations from 1983 to 1986 recalled over one document pertaining to everybody's favorite thing to argue about, NATO's 1983 Command and Control Exercise Able Archer 83. And so even with records dating back 50-some-odd years, I ran across a lot of pages in a lot of languages that looked like this one, if I even saw papers at all. I had a non-zero number of times that I ordered folders, and then you get a box, you pull the folder out, it's alarmingly thin, and then you open it and realize, oh, it's empty, uh, which is everybody's favorite reason. You've traveled to Simi Valley, and it's empty. I, you can switch. I've also, I also quickly concluded that institutional records, so that long list of agencies and high-ranking government officials that I listed before, was not enough to tell the story the way that I wanted to tell it. I looked for ways to capture the perspectives and arguments of activists to understand why and how they mobilized against the Euro missiles. And in part, this was motivated by a desire to move beyond some of the ideologically inflected charges and polemics that were levied against the protesters in the period, right? They were often accused, the so-called peace movement, as an omnibus umbrella, was accused regularly of being little more than Soviet stooges and useful idiots. And we will come back to a little bit about the Soviet and Warsaw Pact role in uh, stoking opposition but I wanted to make sure that there were voices of people who were concerned about the Euro missiles in the story, because I suspected that they maybe had some interesting things to say about what a world with nuclear weapons looked like, in practice felt like, and what security in the atomic age meant. 
There, the research was a little bit less conventional. I did things like watch nightly news segments and flip through photographs and pamphlets. I visited archives dedicated to the preservation of anti-nuclear campaign records and other peace groups and social movements. Places, you can go back for a second, places that were preserving material like this. This is a 1986 pamphlet from the British-based Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, uh, which I photographed at the London School of Economics archives. Uh, you can see uh, incredibly enthusiastic about the American presence uh, in the UK. They had some pretty, uh, pretty good slogans that they would uh, churn out and, and little capsule histories of Anglo-American nuclear relations. You can flip now. In looking at those materials, it was striking the degree to which there were connections and shared messaging that transcended borders. So you saw an immense amount of ideas repeating in, in various places across seemingly disparate groups and individuals. Slogans and shorthand images crisscrossed the Atlantic. And so in one particularly memorable to me case, I stumbled across this lady drawn by the Dutch cartoonist Opland in archive after archive. There are many iterations of, of her. She, in some cases, was kicking a missile, as here. Uh, in others, she was scribbling over a missile with a pen. There were related ones, a whole family of them kicking the missile, priests kicking the missile, right, trying to convey that there was a coalition of concerned, in this case, stick people, uh, worried about the bomb and what it would mean. If you pick up a copy of the book, you can find her in chapter 11. She is scribbling over a missile as part of the campaign poster for the Dutch People's Petition uh, in the mid-1980s against the deployment of cruise missiles to the Netherlands. Okay. The end result is a book that draws on written material and archival collections from eight countries and over two dozen repositories, as well as a whole slew of photographs, popular culture, and published media. Now, it's tempting, right, international historians do this a lot. We have a big, long list of places that we went, and it's tempting to fetishize that kind of work in its own right, collecting archives for the sake of numbers. But I think that work made it possible for me to tell a broader story, a long history of the Euro missiles in transatlantic perspective. So what does that history tell us? I locate the origins of the issue over the Euro missiles in structural factors and elements. It was an issue that was framed by basic parameters of the post-war world, tensions of the post-war transatlantic bargain. And chief among them were the problems, almost perennial, of Allied defense. Since the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty in the spring of 1949, the Western allies had struggled and struggled again to figure out how to provide a sufficient defense for all of NATO's members. Probably nearly anyone who was going to design an alliance from scratch would not pick one shaped like NATO. You would never put your most powerful actor the furthest from the front lines, right? This NATO diagram indicates why. You have a serious geographic problem that you need to surmount. It created perennial problems about how the United States could credibly project power and provide sufficient reassurance to its allies 
medium, and small across Western Europe. I won't shock anyone familiar with NATO's history to say that extended deterrence in the NATO context was always fraught with recurring bouts of skepticism. That might be a classic historian understatement there. The story of the Euro missiles was no different. The problems of a credible extended deterrent, what would make extended deterrence credible, and whether each and every one of the allied governments who needed to believe it was credible did, came up time and time again. One of the biggest difficulties I had writing this book was how to talk about these recurring things without putting my reader to sleep, because the same things kept happening over and over and over again. Does feel a little bit like deja vu. In the book, I follow the debates over how to make extended deterrence as credible as possible through to the end of the Cold War, pushing even beyond the INF Treaty in December 1987. With the rest of our time today, I want to dig into a few uh, critical episodes that I talk about in the book to tee up some of the major arguments and issues I discuss. The conventional wisdom often when people talk about the Euro missiles holds that the question began with the Soviet deployment of the SS-20s, this missile here, in the mid-1970s. These weapons, as the telling often goes, were a significant upgrade in Soviet capabilities in the European theater from the earlier generation of medium and intermediate range ballistic missiles. Far fewer of the SS-20s, for instance, had the pesky habit of blowing up on the launch pad because they no longer used the unstable liquid fuel that earlier generations of MRBMs and IRBMs had used. So in this conventional telling, the Soviet SS-20s posed a new threat to Western Europe and forced NATO to respond with, the de with deployments of its own, spurred on, of course, by none other than West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, who gave a famous speech at IISS in London in October 1977, warning that this was a problem. After Schmidt's speech, NATO responds with the dual-track decision in December 1979, which we'll come back to in a bit. That conventional wisdom is wrong. The arrival of the SS-20s added to an already existing problem. The Western Allies, particularly the West Germans, the government of the Federal Republic of Germany, were concerned already about implications of parity between the United States and the Soviet Union back to the mid-1960s. This was made worse by the signing of the first agreement between the superpowers to limit strategic weapons, 1972's SALT I. The West Germans worried that parity would, uh, would erode the US ability to extend its deterrent to Europe. But even after the deployment of the SS-20s in the mid-1970s, the degree to which these new Soviet systems posed a risk to NATO was far from clear, and there was no internal consensus within the alliance that these weapons posed a fundamentally new threat. West German officials were particularly alarmed and repeatedly began sounding the alarm about a distinct correlation of forces in Europe separate from the strategic weapons of the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, the Germans used a pretty catchy slogan for this, right? They called it the Euro-strategic balance, uh, dividing out between battlefield weapons, then 
weapons that would be strategic were they used in Europe, hence the portmanteau Euro strategic, and then, of course, the strategic arsenals of the superpowers over the top. But the Ford and Carter administrations offered repeated assurances that the SS-20s did nothing to change the overall balance of power. So we have these two views within the alliance, right? One, seeing the SS-20s as fundamentally new, causing a new threat to Western Europe. American policymakers in particular convinced that they don't actually represent a change. There's obviously some daylight between that and what happens in 1979 when they decide to field new nuclear weapons in Europe. So what changes? The Carter administration shifts position. And that is a result of another nuclear issue, the crisis over the enhanced radiation warhead or the neutron bomb. Press leaks in the summer of 1977 drew attention to this new tactical weapon in the US budget. And it quickly set off a firestorm and galvanized protesters. It stoked a resurgence of anti-nuclear activism after years in the doldrums. Against mounting public opposition, a fraction of it stoked and bankrolled by Warsaw Pact intelligence services, the NATO allies struggled to cobble together a plan to enable them to deploy these new anti-tank systems. It was a painstaking effort to reach an agreement that occupied much of NATO's time in the winter and spring of 1977 and 1978. And then, when the Allies were on the verge of approving an incredibly complicated package that married a delay in deployments with deployments with an arms control component, Jimmy Carter pulled the plug. No deal. Carter's decision was roundly criticized. And Carter's choice to walk away from this painstakingly constructed deal was taken as evidence of everything from moralistic temporizing to a fundamental lack of leadership on the part of the Carter administration. In the press, aides of Helmut Schmidt and Schmidt's foreign minister and coalition partner, Hans-Dietrich Genscher, mocked the president. They derided him as a religious dreamer, and on one occasion, Klaus Kinkel, uh, a chief aide, referred to the entire Carter administration as a leaderless hen coop. Now, but Carter refused to let members of his administration push back on these accusations. He quickly concluded that the cost would be too high if it caused any more difficulty in the administration's dealings with Helmut Schmidt's Federal Republic. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the personal dynamic here, there's no love lost between Carter and Schmidt. Carter aides described Schmidt as a know-it-all, convinced he would be a better president if only he were eligible for the post. The political fallout of the neutron bomb made it impossible for the Carter administration to ignore West German concerns about the SS-20 and the Euro-strategic balance and the overall correlation between NATO and Warsaw Pact forces in Europe. But it was only in the wake of the neutron bomb that the Carter administration came around that they needed to do something to re redress these West German concerns. Over the summer of 1978, the Carter administration studies what they will do and quickly come to the conclusion that the best option is to offer to deploy new ground-based missiles to Western Europe. These would be the first ground-based missiles uh, of this 
in, in this piece of NATO's flexible re response strategy to be deployed on the continent since uh, the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It took another 18 months for NATO to reach agreement. What resulted in December 1979 was a complicated agreement with two main com components, known as a result by the incredibly creative name, the dual track decision. The first track was to deploy new ground-based missiles to Western Europe. These would be a mix of Griffin, Glickums, and Pershing twos. The Pershing twos would only be deployed in the Federal Republic of Germany. The Griffins deployed across Western Europe with deployments planned for Belgium, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Italy, and the Federal Republic of Germany. The West Germans were insistent that a structure like this be in place. They could not be alone in shouldering the burden of new nuclear deployments. And to avoid what West German policymakers clunkily referred to as singularization of Germany, the decision shared the burden among primarily non-nuclear states. So the British, for instance, were among the first to offer that they could host missiles, but the British did not meet some pretty valuable criteria, right? They had a nuclear weapons program of their own, so it didn't really seem like they were doing much for the team because they were just doing something that they were already doing on their own. Uh, and the British were also not on the continent. So this is how you end up with Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands. So that's track one of the dual track decision. Track two is a parallel track to undertake arms control negotiations on these same systems to try and negotiate reductions in the Soviet arsenal, which is still growing apace. This decision was a classic product of alliance wrangling. It expressed a degree of consensus, but virtually no one agreed on the underlying logic or relationship between the deployment track and the arms control track. So you have some adherents who saw the deployments as necessary to shore up a strategy of escalation envisioned in flexible response. You have others who believed that the deployments only mattered as a critical bargaining chip to secure reductions in the Soviet arsenal. But to reach the dual track decision, the allies simply sidestepped the question. Both interpretations coexisted uncomfortably but unresolved uh, in alliance politics. Anybody who knows the story of how flexible response gets adopted knows that that's hardly the first time NATO comes to that kind of consensus uh, ambiguity as a way of making consensus work. The decision was intended as reassurance about extended deterrence and its credibility, but it creates immense anxiety among a new constituency, among the general public. The dual track decision comes at a moment when US-Soviet relations are going from bad to worse. The dual track decision is taken on December 12, 1979. Within two weeks, the Soviet Union had invaded neighboring Afghanistan. With superpower relations seemingly in free fall, fears resurged quickly that the Cold War had returned to Europe. You have mounting fears of nuclear annihilation, which came to define much of the culture of the early 1980s. If we think about the popular culture of the day, war games, threads, 99 red balloons, there's a lot of this, a lot of mushroom clouds. That was amplified by a new president elected in November 1980. Ronald Reagan was seen by many as an anti-Soviet hawk, willing to talk tough and spend reams of money in order to defeat the Soviet Union. 
And his early rhetoric added fuel to the fire, leaving many concerned that the Cold War might turn hot. Take young Elizabeth for example. A young, she's about nine when she writes this letter to President Reagan. But Elizabeth's fears, expressed in the language of a nine-year-old, encapsulate the fears of many, both young and old, right? I, too, believe that with nuclear war, I wouldn't have fun. <laughs> or we could see the message of British socialists who saw a generation of conservative politicians all too enamored with the power of nuclear weapons. And here's a great place where we can see how the Euro missiles were never happening in isolation. It was always linked to other political concerns. Uh, some of the text is small here, but you can see a clear link to conservative economic policies here. This is at the top underneath where it says the most explosive love story ever. It says, Milton Friedman in association with Pentagon Productions, uh, the direct, directed by Hank Kissinger, music by Eddie Heath. Uh, here underneath the stop share button, it says IMF picture. So right, we can see some links to the conservative economic ideology uh, that Reagan and Thatcher embodied for so many. This was a, was a message that traveled, right? So I showed you this picture before, but you probably didn't notice this. Here's Maggie and Ronnie in Bonn. Protests rocked Western Europe and North America. These Dutch activists, for instance, cruised the canals in a cruise against cruise. Widespread popular opposition to nuclear weapons provided ample openings for the Soviet Union and its allies in the Warsaw Pact to try and stop the deployments called for in the dual track decision. Right? One of the other pieces of this complicated structure was that while NATO decided in 1979 to deploy these weapons, they agreed that they would not do so until 1983. So if you were a Soviet policymaker, what a gift, right? You have four years to try and stop it. So the Soviet Union did. The Warsaw Pact did. They did so in ways that amplified homegrown dissent. They provided funds and carefully calibrated messaging designed to maximize existing concerns and anxieties. But I want to be crystal clear. Critics came from diverse backgrounds and political traditions. They opposed the missiles on a variety of grounds, whether a basic and understandable fear of nuclear war, like the version Elizabeth expressed, to a rejection of the underlying logic of the Cold War, a skepticism whether the Cold War was even worth fighting. You had religious objections to the morality of nuclear deterrence, economic objections to the things that could be financed if you didn't spend money on a nuclear arms race, and many more. Against this backdrop, the United States and the Soviet Union also began negotiations. In the fall of 1981, talks opened in Geneva on Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, or INF. I'm happy to talk in the Q&A about why the name transitioned from theater nuclear forces to intermediate range nuclear forces, if anyone is interested in that sort of arcane uh, genealogy of the term. These talks were bound up in efforts to win hearts and minds in Western Europe, which meant that they were often dismissed as little more than a public relations stunt. Despite immense public pressure, right here we can see a demonstration in October 1983 in Bonn, the deployments went ahead. 
votes in the British, Italian, and West German parliaments all agreed to accept their slate of the Euro missiles. And the Soviets responded not to the British parliament voting to approve the deployments, not to the Italian parliament voting to approve the deployments, but when the West German parliament voted to approve the deployments, the Soviets responded by walking out of the INF talks in Geneva. What comes next is a rapid transformation. In four years between the Soviet walkout in late 1983 and December of 1987, the Soviet position changed dramatically. I cannot overstate the degree to which that was a product of Mikhail Gorbachev's thinking and diplomacy, particularly his willingness to untie the arms control package and to break the issue of intermediate range nuclear forces out of a deal that would have linked it with the Strategic Defense Initiative, right? trying to block Reagan's beloved Star Wars program. Gorbachev was also willing to accept what was a fundamentally lopsided deal with clear US advantages. In the INF Treaty signed in December 1987, the Soviet Union destroyed 1,000 more missiles, and the Soviets agreed to a much more aggressive inspection regime than prior arms control agreements was also a treaty that preserved key U.S. advantages. The United States and the Soviet Union dismantled and destroyed every ground-based missile with a range between 500 and 5,500 kilometers, but left air and sea-launched missiles where the United States had a decisive advantage untouched. If we think about the way much of U.S. warfighting looked in the 1990s, it is because those advantages were preserved. Now, we might think the story ends here with the signing of the INF Treaty. But the aftermath of that December 1987 agreement caused a whole new round of angst within NATO. And the alliance confronted familiar difficulties about how credible extended deterrence would be with the removal of the Glickums and Pershing IIs. The alliance quickly faced a new round of problems over the missiles that had been left out of the INF Treaty the Short-Range Nuclear Forces, or SNF, with a range under 500 kilometers, some of which were due for modernization in NATO's arsenal. These weapons caused particular problems in the Federal Republic of Germany as their modernization drew attention to nearly all of the uncomfortable realities of the West German position as a state divided, uh, a state in a divided nation straddling the front lines of the Cold War, uh, and reliant on the United States for critical parts of its defense, was best captured by an incredibly morbid slogan that gained traction in the Federal Republic, the shorter the range, the deader the German. Thatcher, in particular, chafed at West German opposition to the modernization of SNF. She was increasingly convinced that the West Germans had an outsized role and say in NATO's decision-making, a concern made all the worse by a perceived sense of decline in British relevance in that decision-making. Thatcher was fearful that a swell of popular opposition uh, to SNF modernization, along with deft diplomacy by Gorbachev, would leave the Allies exposed facing pressure to accept another zero solution like the INF Treaty. This could result in Thatcher's fears in the denuclearization of Europe, the unraveling of NATO's deterrent, 
and, the found, and, and rattling the foundations of peace in post-war Europe. Even in 1989, Allied policymakers worried about the durability of NATO's defenses and policies. The earlier deliberations and debates over INF in the early 1980s had fractured the security consensus in many countries. Could the alliance, many wondered, still maintain a posture based on nuclear weapons? It was a question that ended up swept away with the Berlin Wall and the crumbling of communist regimes across Eastern Europe. But that sense of fragility, whether the still incredibly fresh debates over SNF modernization or the scars of problems earlier in the decades remained. Against that backdrop, it's not difficult to see why so many allied officials, not just American officials, were eager to see NATO play a vital role in the emerging post-Cold War order. This is a threat threat I'm planning to pick up in a future project uh, about the struggle to overcome the division of Europe spanning from 1945 to the present. By way of conclusion, because I've talked too long already, I want to flag a few more takeaways from this project. The first is that the book highlights a fundamental duality and tension in NATO's strategy of flexible response. There's ample evidence in the book to support the argument made popular by Francis Gavin that flexible response was a myth. But I also tell a parallel story about how much that myth mattered politically and how much it mattered to keep that fiction alive in transatlantic relations. So even if flexible response didn't work, it shaped policy in critical ways. The second is that any of you who are familiar with the literature around this topic might have noticed that I have not once used the phrase the Euromissiles crisis. And I opted not to use this common shorthand because I believe that it overlooks the severity and significance of the issue. Not because the Euromissiles did not cause a crisis, but because they caused tons of crises, big and small, among allied voters and their governments, among allies, among adversaries. There were multi-layered, it's like a seven-layer dip of crises here. There's a lot of crisis happening in the book, tiny ones, big ones, medium-sized ones. And it's all too easy in framing something as the Euromissiles crisis to see it as somehow isolated or unique or episodic. And my research shows that it was anything but. The questions and debates surrounding the Euromissiles called into question all of the major assumptions at the heart of the transatlantic order post-1945. By that, I mean the role of the United States in Europe, the role of the Federal Republic of Germany in European security, the role of nuclear weapons, even the role of the Soviet Union. The third and final thing I want to flag is that there is still a shocking amount that we do not know about the nuclear dynamics of the Cold War and about the intra-alliance dynamics of NATO. And so for me, working on this project helps set a future research agenda. I have a Stanton nuclear security grant right now to support the research and writing of a unified history of NATO and the Warsaw Pact uh, with a particular focus on the interplay between the two over nuclear weapons uh, with Simon Miles, who's also a Duke, And I'm also working on a broader history of NATO, giving more space to the medium and smaller members as drivers of alliance debate and policy to move beyond interpretations of NATO as an extension of US foreign policy. 
And that really stemmed in large part out of this work. I'll end with one anecdote about one of the most surprising things. I've often been asked, you know, what is what surprised you the most about doing this? And when I was working on the center part of the book, where I talk about the difficulties of seeing the deployments through in the early 1980s, there is a remarkable moment where everything hinges on Italian politics working. Right? The West Germans need a non-nuclear continental ally to agree to accept their share of the missiles. It doesn't matter that the British are going to do it. Margaret Thatcher's government is firmly in power after the Falklands, and and they're fine because they don't really count. The West Germans have left the Belgians, who have already said they won't, and have kicked the can down the road about three times by this point. The Dutch, who are definitely not going to do it, and not anytime soon. They're talking about, you know, 1986, 1987, sometime down the road. So all the West Germans have is that Italian politics, Italian parliamentary politics are going to work. It's a miracle that they work. And so ultimately, so much of this design hinges on that one, that one piece falling into place. Because otherwise, all the threads start to unravel. So there is a remarkable, it's, it's really tempting in retrospect to see this as a, a sort of beautiful, perfect policy outcome. Right? You ramp up, you build up to build down. All the sort of narratives the Reagan administration people tell about why everything worked in the 80s. But when you go back and reconstruct it and follow it as the actors did, there are so many other ways that it might have turned out that capturing that sense of uncertainty really helped me come away with a a different appreciation for just how and why the Cold War ended the way that it did in Europe and what that meant for the order that came after, particularly this desire to keep NATO as a critical part of the order. I'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Well, uh, keep a running list. Um, Barry, I saw you first. Go ahead, Barry. Um, I'm really excited about this work. Um, I long believe that the, the nuclear component NATO Warsaw Pact competition has been understudied, and I share your continued, I noticed your redacted slide, but your continued frustration with the, the fact that the actual sinews of the activity are almost entirely opaque. We know vastly more about American strategic nuclear forces, how they work, than we do about how NATO is the nuclear force, or Russia. Um, so, really happy you're doing this. Um, I've, all, I've had many, many questions about all this, and I'm one of the old guys who lived through this. And one thing has always puzzled me, and that is, did German politicians and others who favored this deployment, and, and the Germans were the ones who sort of started the music on this, did they utterly fail to anticipate the mass political opposition, or did they anticipate it, shrug their shoulders and say, We'll get through it, or did they anticipate it, shrug their shoulders and say, "This is fine. This is good." Right. So, did they know it was coming, and how did they think they were going to get through it? It is the German position is so difficult to pin down uh, because 
I think a lot of, especially on topics of nuclear weapons, there was a desire not to talk about what it would mean in practice. And that was not just a public conversation. That was even an inside the government conversation, right? I think there were so many people who it was much easier to live with the status quo if you did not ever talk about what it would mean in practice in, in the German case. So that that's sort of a, a framing. I think, so you have a situation in which Helmut Schmidt in particular, I don't actually think Helmut Schmidt knows why he wants a deployment or if he wants a deployment. So one of the biggest things that ends up happening in the diplomacy between 1977 and 1979 is Schmidt makes this big speech at uh, in London where he says that you know strategic parity is going to increase the threat to Europe because there is going to be a decoupling, right? This is the sort of, he never uses the term, but that's the boogeyman he refers to. But when the Carter administration starts in late 1978 to talk about deployments, Schmidt immediately gets skittish about it. So they meet, when they meet at Guadeloupe, uh, he, Carter, uh, Giscard d'Estaing, uh, and James Callahan, Carter offers th this, this idea that they could deploy. And Schmidt goes on a long, characteristically long for Schmidt, right, 45-minute sort of lecture about how flexible response is going to work, uh, in which he says, I don't know if I can take it. It will be politically damaging in Germany. It will be unpopular. Uh, and so I don't think Schmidt ever gets to a point where he likes the deployment. He accepts the logic that maybe you need them as a bargaining chip. But he, he ends up never really taking, right? I said that there are these two schools that you have some people who see them as a bargaining chip and some people who see them as shoring up flexible response. And Schmidt is kind of both, but he never picks a camp. He kind of goes back and forth between them. I don't think Schmidt anticipated the degree to which it would fracture his own political party. And that ends up becoming Schmidt's biggest problem is that the social Democrats of which he is, is the, the leader end up basically abandoning him. And when the vote happens in 83, they are then in opposition. And Schmidt is one of the few uh, SPD politicians who, who still votes for the deployments to go ahead. So this is a long and scattered answer to say that I think that you have both. I think that they are, there are some pockets of the West German political establishment that genuinely hope that it will be like the 1950s. Like maybe there will be public opposition, but it will fade quickly and they will go back to accepting that this is just the way that things have to be. And, and then you have uh, another group that just hopes that the question will never get called. And so they are not adequately prepared at all for the conversation that they need to have in, in the 1980s, uh, in the early 1980s, to make the case to the German people. And so you see in the West German records, they are scrambling in 82 and 83 to try and put a compelling case to West German citizens, and they don't really succeed, uh, which then comes back to haunt them over SNF later. Possibly say a little bit more about the Italian decision to sort of agree to deploy these nuclear weapons. It, it seems like they could have easily said the same thing as the Dutch and the Belgians, that no, we're not going to do this either. So what about the dynamic got them to say yes? 
Yeah, so I think there are two factors that matter. One, one is that you have an Italian government that is uh, more stable than nearly every other Italian coalition government since 1945. Like, the government that is in power in 1982-1983 makes it a whole six years, which is, like, shockingly long for Italian politics. Uh, and so, so there is a, a fundamentally, it is a more stable government than ones that had come before or after. But the bigger explanation, I think, is that the Italians, the story that happens in the late 1970s and early 1980s about Italian participation is in some ways a replay of the 1950s and late 1950s and early 1960s, where Italian policymakers see participation as a way to increase their status and importance in the alliance. The Italians are acutely aware that when the big powers of NATO meet, Italy is not invited. So this summit that I just mentioned, Guadalupe, right, you have the, the leaders of the big four. They, however tenuously meet uh, in, in the Caribbean under the auspices of consultations on divided Berlin to justify keeping many of the other allies out. And the British at the foreign office, the British complain bitterly that like for weeks after Guadalupe, Italian officials of various ranks just keep coming to their offices to complain about how they weren't invited and this is so inappropriate. Uh, and, and so it really does come from a, Italian participation as a way to buy Italy a little bit more influence in the decision-making process, right? To recognize that Italy is not one of those other tiny countries. It's not Luxembourg, right? It is, it is important. Uh, and, and so I think those two pieces go a long way in explaining why uh, why the Italians ultimately do go ahead with the, the decision in 83. Um, Austin. Thank you. Um, this was so clear and fascinating. Um, there are a lot of, you know, you make the case that there are many ways to understand Euromissiles and the implications. And I, I wonder if one is not sort of the the trade-offs inherent in extended deterrence. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is that this is sort of a story about, you know, technological sufficiency or a test of technological sufficiency in a certain sense. Um, one of the motivations for the Euromissiles deployment was reassuring allies, European allies about extended deterrence. Then, you know, uh, this creates the public anxieties and then you have anxieties about um, angst within NATO about the credibility of extended deterrence. And I just wonder, like, in your story, in the archives, do the junior European partners come out and say, like, this is what we need to be reassured? Or is, is extended deterrence always a moving target and policymakers are just sort of, like, guessing? I'm not talking about the deterrence effect. I'm talking about the reassurance aspect. Are policymakers just always sort of, like, guessing at what it's going to take to reassure... Um, the allies. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, so you you think about how if we if we think about reassurance as a project where Washington it starts in Washington and it moves outward. You think about who the any pick an administration, right? Who that administration is trying to reassure. You're trying to reassure the West Germans. They're the most important. I want to be 100% clear. Doesn't matter if everybody else is unhappy. If the West Germans are unhappy, you have a big problem, right? The whole system is gonna fall apart. And so chief 
like top of the list every single time is make sure that the West Germans, right, divided on the front lines of the Cold War, having signed away some of its freedom of action in this area, feel like the system is going to hold. Okay. Then you got to keep, you ideally want to keep more than just the West Germans happy. So you got to reassure the French, always a fun project. You got to reassure the British. You have to reassure Belgium and the Netherlands and Luxembourg and Turkey and maybe even the Canadians want to be reassured even though they're not in Europe. And so you are trying to calibrate something that captures as much of, of that as possible. But all of those targets have an ever-moving set of calculations. They have domestic politics. They have party political views. They have personal feelings about other leaders. There are any number of things that are changing. So a perfect example, a, a small piece of the story but that illustrates this well, is in the diplomacy of 1978-79, when they're hammering out what this dual-track decision is going to look like, they go back and forth about what kinds of weapons are going to provide reassurance. So the Americans are, are pretty convinced that they have to be ground-based missiles because that's going to, it's going to be a departure from the way that it had worked in the 1960s and 1970s up to that point. They would move away from relying on offshore systems to really, you know, signaling by putting something in Europe, in this range, as a new form of commitment, of reassurance. But the minute they start talking about potential systems, all these people start sort of, you know, in the, the NATO committees debating this going, could we maybe think about sea-based systems? Like, I know that you think that this is going to reassure us, but my voters don't want to live next to a missile base because they think that then the Soviets will bomb their house. So it's way easier if we can put them on like some thing out there that moves around and they don't have to think about it. And so they end up in this loop, right, where the Americans are tailoring something. The Carter administration is saying, ground-based weapons are going to reassure you, and we are going to make sure that we protect ground-based cruise missiles, which we had been planning to give away in SALT to, but we'll keep them if you want them. We're going to invest in the Pershing too. We're going to, we're going to do all of these things. And then the Europeans are like, but sea-based systems might be so much nicer. And the Carter administration is just like, but we're doing this for you. And so you have this constant re renegotiation. And so even after they agreed at the dual track decision, the West Germans keep coming back and saying, so they're really unpopular. Like maybe we could think about those sea-based systems again. And the American policymakers just keep going, do you remember the MLF? Like, it's never going to work. We tried this. It didn't work. But, but there is always a hope that they're going to negotiate a little bit around the margins. And so reassurance is just this ever-moving ever -moving target. Um, Suzanne. Hi. Thank you for a really interesting talk. I'm Suzanne Freeman. I'm a fourth-year PhD student. Um, so you mentioned sort of with INF that Gorbachev is essentially um, accepting this lopsided, this lopsided deal, and that's typically the way that it's discussed. And I know that your goal wasn't necessarily to explain Soviet behavior, but I'm curious sort of in the course of your research if you saw other explanations for Gorbachev's behavior beyond sort of his uniqueness or difference from previous Soviet leaders. I think there's sort of reading Soviet defense documents from the time, there's this sense of an idea about INF being more damaging to the U.S. because 
with a non-planned economy, it's going to struggle to retask its defense industry in a way that the Soviet Union wouldn't because it has a planned economy. And it's difficult to know whether or not that's sort of like a band-aid over like other policymakers trying to justify whatever it is that Gorbachev wants to do. Or I'm curious to sort of what extent you saw other justifications for Gorbachev's accepting of something that does look very strategically and operationally lopsided. Yeah. The, the the Soviet piece of the puzzle is is a really fascinating piece of this story, and I think there I'm hopeful that we will get even more documents uh, and have more historians start to dig into that that piece of the puzzle. But it seems to me that part of the Gorbachev story is uh, I'm not saying anything new here, but is really about a sense of time time horizons, just that time is running out, and so right there's a the the memo that best encapsulates the logic is a memo that Alexander Yakovlev writes for Gorbachev uh, on the eve of the February 1987 uh, meeting where they are discussing whether or not they're going to untie the arms control package, right? So arms control at that point related to INF is taking place in the nuclear and space talks. And so there's a strategic piece, there's the INF piece, and then there's like defense and space. It's just SDI with a anodyne name. And so... Yakovlev's case is INF missiles pose a distinct threat to us, right? They're particularly worried about the Pershing II, which many Soviet officials had likened to a pistol pointed at the temple of the Soviet Union, right? This kind of, because of the technological advancements of the Pershing II, that it posed a, a distinct threat to Soviet policymakers, to, to the Soviet Union more broadly. Yakovlev is also thinking about time in other senses, right? That in Gorbachev's broader political agenda, time is, is starting to run out. And INF gives them a way to signal that many of the initiatives of 85 and 86 were not just more sloganeering or efforts to win cheap propaganda points, but rather that they were a way to say, look, transparency and openness are real. Right? Uh, this also informs the Soviet position to, to start to accept more aggressive inspection uh, as part of INF. And so Yakovlev's case is basically, we, we can't keep holding out that it's going to get better. We need to get a deal on what we can get a deal on. And so if that means leaving SDI aside, then that's fine. So I, I would say you really have this, this sense that the, that the clock is against them. Right? They, can't, they can't just keep waiting they needed to accept something. Uh, and I think the other piece of that, um, and Elizabeth Charles has written quite, quite eloquently about some of Gorbachev's decision-making uh, around this, but is the Chernobyl. I mean, the, the experience of, of Chernobyl really did change, I think, for Gorbachev, m much of his just sort of broader mood. Uh, and those things are really hard for historians to quantify or see in the documents, but the way that they talk about nuclear weapons and the problem, it really does start to change. Uh, and so, so I think you, you have a few different pieces there, but, but that's sort of how I would explain the constellation of Gorbachev coming to accept that it might not be ideal, but it's, it's a start at something bigger, and it was a step in Gorbachev's mind worth taking. Now, it was obviously not popular with many of Gorbachev's advisors, uh, but but he uh, had some un unlikely allies uh, in that uh, chief, among them Matthias Rust, the West German who landed a plane on Red Square uh, in 87 and, and helped 
give uh, Gorbachev a good pretext to oust some of the military guys. Um, John. Uh, good afternoon. I'm uh, John Turner. I'm an Army fellow here. And um, having worked uh, nuclear incident policy in European Command for a couple of years, um, found this really fascinating. Uh, to which I'd add, in our conversations at European Command, we always ask kind of like whatever happened to, you know, the other the other story, the story behind why the Persian two and everything um, left uh, and having to pass a lot of those bases. Uh, so I'll forward this book out to uh, some of my colleagues who are still out there working this issue. But I guess what I wanted to ask is, the Euro missiles are gone, but the Euro bombs are still there. Right, and I guess is is there a volume two to your book that you see in the future? Like how far away might that be? But but really, you know, there's still a target, still in many of. I have to think about how I can ask this question. We're all we're still. Um, um, Ryan just Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, I guess the question would be really like, did you learn anything in your, aside from the obvious issue of delivery, it's a lot easier to deliver a missile than it is to deliver a bomb. Um, is that what's keeping them there? Um, or do you foresee a time where uh, the non strategic nuclear weapons that are still in Europe um, are no longer there? The, Europe, the, the US non strategic weapons, the, the NATO weapons. So. What might cause that? I would parse those, uh, right? NATO weapons could be something other than U.S. non, yeah, right? And that's one scenario in which maybe U.S. weapons would leave is if there were other weapons in the NATO arsenal that could offset that. We are not there, right? I don't need to tell any of you in this room that. We're not there. Um, I think the short version to your last question is no. I mean, I'm a historian, so take my future forecasting for what it is. But I think no. Uh, because I think there is uh, an intellectual hang-up about anything that could be referred to as the denuclearization of Europe. And that is shorthand for the U.S. nuclear arsenal in Europe in some capacity. So even though the situation now looks nothing in numbers and force structure like what it looked like during the Cold War, zero is very different than some number above zero. And so that number might get smaller. I don't think the Russians are making a good case for that number to get smaller. But in theory, it could get smaller. But I think zero is, the no, is, is a, a no-go point, at least in the foreseeable future. In terms of writing about it, you answered that question, right? If you can't comfortably ask a question in an open forum, I am never going to have documents. I can't even use the historian hack or the political scientist hack of doing oral history interviews because no one can talk to me about them. And so unless I write for a classified audience and then it sits on a shelf and is never read, um, which is every academic stream, uh, then, it's, then it's impossible, right? You would just never have... So part of what makes this story possible to tell and... There are many more documents that I would love to see come out about this, but is that there is this sense of finality, right? There are no Pershing twos in, in Europe. And so there is a sort of logical endpoint to say, we can, you know, if, if you are the person who is redacting things, a cursory Google can reassure you that maybe you can release some of this information. Not all of it. 
but but there's a there's a reason that you might feel confident that it's okay to let that out. I don't think that's true in trying to explain why the current force structure is the way that it is. I don't think any release reviewer would would have that same degree of confidence. So that makes it really really hard to talk about. B. Thank you so much for the talk. Uh, my name is Nick Blanchett. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate um, here at SSP and uh, really interested in uh, European nuclear security dynamics. So uh, looking forward to reading the book. Um, my question is sort of slightly different. Um, I was immediately struck by the similarities of this sort of Euro missiles debate um, to more recent um, debates and conversations over uh, defense planning in the post INF treaty age. Um, about the placement of theater range missiles um, across different U.S. partners um, in the Indo-Pacific to sort of plug a deterrence and assurance gap or whatever the language is now. Um, in particular, the degree to which the, uh, the question over uh, whether the countries would be willing to host the missiles is sort of lost over or ignored. Um, I was wondering if you might be able to weigh in um, in terms of what U.S. decision makers or um, allied decision makers should take away from the Euro missiles crisis specifically. Um, and thinking about the sort of ongoing debate about um, sort of similar INF systems um, being deployed in this sort of U.S.-China competition going forward. Yeah, I, th I think in some ways the story of the Euromissiles is a cautionary tale about just how much the politics and domestic turmoil of a potential host country can sh shape the decision-making. Uh, and so you have a situation, for instance, Obviously, the Netherlands is not the, the make-or-break state in this story, but the Dutch actually never end up with their slate of cruise missiles. They agree to take them, but they agree so late that by the time they are scheduled for delivery, Reagan and Gorbachev are, are signing the INF Treaty, and so they never come. Uh, similarly, there's a slate of missiles that are supposed to go to Molesworth in the United Kingdom that the Thatcher government ends up in this really, really weird debate because they're slated to come in, I believe, November of 1987, so they're like, well, the deal could fall apart, but what do, how do we tell our public that we're going to install these new missiles and then take them away in you know, a few months' time or a few years' time? So, so I think that's the, the first takeaway uh, that, that I would say is just that, and, and that that can change over time, right? There's not a static... Uh, situation in in any host country about, about how the issue of, of hosting nuclear weapons might be treated. And then that can intersect with a whole bunch of other sort of broader uh, national, cultural, psychological issues about dependence on the United States and things like that. There's a lot of that in the early 1980s and how they critique the Euro missiles. Um, I think the other, the other piece I would come back to my answer maybe to Austin is that reassurance is a moving target. And so you might be doing something to reassure someone but it might not actually reassure them. Or it might terrify other people, right? I mean, that's, so one of, one of the dynamics that I talk a lot about in the book is about how they, you are trying to navigate the situation where you want to uh, reassure your allies without terrifying their voters. You want to terrify the Soviets without terrifying your allies or their voters. And so how do you strike the balance just right that you do enough terrifying and enough reassuring of the right mix of people? It's really easy to mess up that balance. And then there's a, a, lot, of, a lot of potential risk there. Um, the, the last thing that I would say is um, 
the the idea that there is a sort of like neatly exported lesson from the Euro missiles is something that grinds my gears like to, to, I can't even quantify how much it drives me crazy. Uh, the this it looks linear only in retrospect, right? There is a beautiful sort of rise and fall narrative that you could tell. That is not reality. Uh, and so part of the reason that I ended up taking the book to, through the INF Treaty to the SNF period is that flexible response, everything about NATO's nuclear strategy looks like it's going to fall apart in 1988 and 1989. It's just that the Soviet Union falls apart faster. Right? So Gregory Treverton uh, called it a race to the bottom. Right? And so I use this metaphor in, in the book where I talk about how it, you know, if the entire Cold War was this race to the bottom, it's just that the Warsaw Pact bottomed out faster and harder. Uh, but the I mean, go read press coverage from the 1989 NATO summit in uh, about SNF. I mean, those are not good or happy times uh, in in the alliance. Not that those are NATO's always in crisis. So what else is new? But uh, but 1989 is one of those moments where it's it's particularly fraught. Um. So I had a question uh, about your kind of provocative statement that the deployment of the SS-20s didn't really matter. Um, so I guess he unpacked that a little bit more. Um, like if there hadn't been the deployment, would we have had this crisis a little bit later? Would we have not had the crisis because we needed the deployment as a focal point uh, for all the other concerns? Um, like, how would you sort of situate that in the context of <clears throat> what you were describing as kind of the broader factors? Yeah. Um, it's not that I think the SS-20s don't matter. It's that I don't think the SS-20 is the tipping point, right? So one of the things that I I'm, was thinking about in writing the beginning of the, the book, this first part to explain how the, the allies get to the dual track decision, is where is the point of no return? Right? So you have a host of accumulating factors that cause uncertainty and anxiety and difficulty in, in allied politics. But what is the point of no return where somebody says, okay, we have to do something about it, and you actually get a decision? It is not the deployment of the SS-20. It is not the Schmidt speech in London. It is the fallout from the neutron bomb. Right? It is when West German confidence in extended deterrence and flexible response is so low and U.S.-German relations are so poor that the Carter administration is convinced they have to do something to fix it or the Germans are going to start to freelance. Right? People, this is like a perennial Cold War fear, right, that the Germans are sort of going to go rogue. So it's not that the SS-20s don't matter, but that but that the SS-20s are part of the sort of long buildup. And there, in, in the book, I talk at greater length about how uh, the SS-20, in, in many respects, is a logical outgrowth of the superpowers arms control negotiations for SALT-1, right? So what they define as a strategic weapon leaves out the Americans' debate trying to include Soviet medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles. They end up dropping those because they don't want to give up forward, U.S. forward-based systems. And so the United States and the Soviet Union, the negotiators agree on a series of criteria that basically govern, and the SS-20 fits within those criteria very neatly. And so there is much more debate about how much the SS-20 matters in 1975 and 1976 than I think 
the, the story that says, oh, it's the beginning, the Soviets deploy, and then the whole thing kicks off. But I appreciate you drawing me out on that to clarify. Oh, very. So, having, as I said, this is, I know I have, to say I lived through this, I had no rule. I was in this business early in my career. Um, I was puzzled that you didn't talk about the non-nuclear side of NATO's activity in the 70s. So the irony here is that the Carter administration had mounted a major effort to improve NATO's conventional capabilities. We all agreed we would increase defense spending in real terms by 3% a year. The spending was actually some of the best planned defense spending on, in a transatlantic sense that I think we had before or since. Um, it actually aimed at real problems and was solving them. Um, and I think that, I know I believed it and I argued it and argued it in public, but uh, my sense is that there were a good many people involved the transatlantic defense planning who believe during the Carter administration that a genuine, robust, conventional defense of the alliance was in sight. And I think this was anathema to the Germans, even though it depended entirely on their cooperation, and they did cooperate on the quiet. I mean, their army by the end of the Cold War was huge. They had done lots. But the idea that conventional forces and conventional deterrence, which was a term that people used, many didn't like, was front and center, and the nuclear risk to the Russians if they chose to mount a challenge would be far and back. This, I think, was anathema to them. So this cuts back to the central problem of extended deterrence. Extended deterrence is a crazy thing to promise. And yet, it even read the nuclear posture. I read it yesterday. It's just full. It's just dripping with this nonsense. Right? It's complete. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't mean we're not going to we're not going to try and make it work. We're not going to commit to it. Blah, blah, blah. But at bottom, it's always a kind of a nutty promise that you're going to wait to general from a nuclear war on behalf of somebody else to save a province or two. It's a nutty. It's a nutty, inherently incredible promise. Right? And our whole history is doing these gymnastics to make the promise seem credible. So I just wonder, I, I'm giving my own speech here, but I'm wondering, uh, um, you, you didn't include it in your story, and, and, and how much do you think that that was also part of the story, that we're not going to have a denuclearized NATO, and we, the Germans, just start kicking up dust to renuclearize this thing however we can. And that's just when it was like a, a, a streetcar named Play Coup or something, right? Yeah, I, I think, uh, so in the book, I do, I do talk about uh, the Carter administration's efforts uh, to to invest in, in conventional defense, and I talk a little bit also about the Reagan administration's efforts uh, in particularly early second-term Reagan administration efforts to come back to ideas of conventional deterrence. So the Carter administration, yeah, I, I think that this is, this issue of conventional defense ends up caught up in this broader sort of crisis of confidence in particularly the Bonn-Washington axis, 
right? So the Carter administration comes in, and they've got the best and the brightest. They bring Bob Comer from RAND, and he's churning out study after study after study about how they're going to do this. They are the people who bring us this cursed math about percentages uh, that we are still stuck with, that everybody argues how we'll calculate. But they have a real plan that they are going to, you know, they're the realities of strategic parity are such that the old ways aren't going to work. They need to revisit some of the things that have been so difficult in the early 1950s about building up conventional defense. The problem is that when the rubber hits the road, no German wants to hear, we are going to defend conventionally because where are you going to do it? You're going to do it in Germany. And now, you know, after 25 years of prosperity, West Germans don't want to hear, especially post-68, that this is, that is not a German society that is interested or open in hearing about how there's going to be land war in Europe on German territory, and they're going to fight East Germans. Absolutely not. They, there's zero appetite. And so as much as they don't like nuclear weapons, everything else is worse. And so they end up, and then because everyone is so concerned that if you lose the Germans, the whole thing comes down, they have to reassure the Germans. So they end up back at nuclear stuff. And so they start in 77 and 78 flirting with cruise missile technology. It's going to be cheap. It's going to be easy. Maybe the British can have cruise missiles. The French can have cruise missiles. And American policymakers are like, please stop talking about cruise missiles. We want to give them away with the Soviets and SALT too. And the MOD in London, the... Uh, Defense Ministry in Germany, they are just constantly crusading for the Christmas. They're like, maybe don't get rid of it. We might want it. It will be really useful. And it is because there is this anxiety. And, and a few really unfortunate uh, and timely press leaks make this problem worse. So in 1977, there's a huge boondoggle in the first months of the Carter administration because there is a leak about an internal study about NATO's defense uh, in which Brzezinski is unfortunately quoted as saying that they would have to give up at least one-third of the Federal Republic of Germany and then fight to get it back. Well, not beloved as a position in, in West Germany. And then, and this comes into, and here, here is a place where the personal really matters. This comes into a situation where Schmidt and Carter dislike one another so viscerally over nearly everything uh, that that you, you do have this moment where nearly everything is cutting in a direction that is, is negative. It's trending poorly in U.S.-West German relations. And that, I think, is, a, is the critical piece of, of why the Carter administration's policy turns out the way that it does. Um, now we have three <laughs> coming up. Um, Jim? No, am I on the one list? I didn't see you on the one uh, list. Are you on the one list? Well, I hope I am. Um, that you've not, you've not <laughs> asserted yourself as sufficient vigor. I would like to be on the <laughs> Jim. <laughs> um, I enjoyed, I'm Jim Walsh, and I enjoyed your talk so much, and it's an important topic. And I want to ask a question about West Germany. Somewhere, in some ways, the opposite of the question that Barry is asking. And I want to preface it by saying, I can't wait to read the book. I can share my copy with you after I get it. Uh, but, um, and I'm sure it tells, uh, tells a complex and layered causal story that gets compressed in a talk. But it seems to, the, to me, the listener, that this is a story about politics primarily and not about the strategic balance of forces. 
It's and what and so my question about if West Germany is the mover here or the pusher, and others you know are less enthusiastic or don't even care or whatever, and then West Germany is pushing, and they need reassurance. I'm reminded that reassurance can sometimes just be within the domain of the psychological and the political. So I'm wondering, uh, and then the answer you gave about some of the West German, you know, back and forth sort of sounds like American politicians who campaign hard on something and when they get it, they have buyer's remorse. So I'm wondering where the strategic balance is in all this. Do they really think that very understandably says that, you know, it's an incredible promise. And yet we have a treaty. We have U.S. forces. A lot of Americans are going to die. We have nuclear weapons in the area. Nuclear, everyone believes nuclear war will escalate. There's a triad, a secure second strike. So do they really think, does the Western officials, are they motivated But what they see is a gap in the strategic balance, or is this really about politics and personnel? That is an impossible question to answer. Okay. No. No. I think... Yes, no, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, I'll get maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like this is a big, a pronounced element of the, of the discussion. So what I would say is that in West German thinking, the two are inseparable. Because there is a West German logic of balance that is impossible to divorce from how West German policymakers believe that they are going to live within and live remotely contentedly within the Cold War system. And so Schmidt is probably the most clear as an intellectual architect of this idea of balance, right? He had written a number of books about the, the correlation of forces about NATO strategy dating back to the early 1960s, and most of them hinge on this idea of a balance. And Schmidt is talking about balance at multiple different levels. But the reason that I think it is difficult to divorce from politics or psychology is that for Schmidt, the military balance is indistinguishable and impossible to separate from uh, a balance politically and the pursuit of Ostpolitik. And so then it is caught up in domestic politics, the brand of the SPD, uh, Schmidt's own sense of his, his skills and ability. And so they become conflated so quickly that, that they are, are trying, when American policymakers are trying to do reassurance, they're trying to do reassurance on a number of fronts. It's part personal, it's part psychological, it's part the, the actual correlation or balance of forces, so some of it's military. They're, they're kind of in the, the grab bag stage of just, let's see how we can diffuse this problem wherever we can get at Schmidt. If it was, if I may just follow yeah. briefly. If it was, um, I, I accept your explanation wholly, which is a tough thing analytically then. But if that was the case, then why double back on ground-based deployments and start to say, well, maybe C won't be so bad? In other words, they're, they've identified a, what they say is a strategic gap as part of their concept of this balance of forces. And then they begin to change their mind when they when it comes close to. Because it's coming closer. 
Because it suddenly be, it's easy to ask for something if you, I mean, this is, you know, you're a kid and you're like, mom, can I have three candy bars? And mom says no, fine. But then, like, if you get three candy bars and you throw up, you have buyer's remorse, right? So once it, be well, <laughs> once it becomes possible, they start to rethink. Because it's one thing when you're, ask when you're pushing on a closed door and it's another thing when you're pushing on an open door.